Psalms 7, 1. The Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers, and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Good morning. Good morning. What you drinking today, darling? Oh, <laughs> ginger turmeric tea with a splash of cream. And what do you think about it? It's disgusting. It is disgusting. <laughs> so um, we didn't have a sponsor this morning because the place we were going to have was closed. Mm-hmm. And um, I just stopped by Aldi and grabbed some ginger turmeric tea. It looked interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both drinking a hot cup and neither one of us care for it too much. Um, but it's healthy. It's well, worth, yeah, worth, it's good for you. I'm not sure if it's worth it. I'll see if I get through this whole <laughs> cup. So today's story is a local one. Okay. It actually took place about 30 minutes up the road in the town of Pleasant Garden, North Carolina. That's actually where my sister lives now. Okay. Which one? Kim. Okay. Uh, It's a Pleasant Garden is a rural community. It's situated south of Greensboro in Guilford County. To its east is the neighboring community of Julian Mm -hmm. across the county line. That's in Randolph County. And then Climax is located just south of it, and it kind of straddles both Randolph and Guilford County. And I'm very familiar with this story. Um, It happened about three miles from my daddy's house. Okay. And I clearly remember when it all went down, my dad's wife telling all about it. She and her daughters knew the family, so it's, it's pretty familiar. Okay. It's not an older history story like we have been doing a lot of. It actually happened in the mid to late 90s. Okay. I mean, but hey, it's that's been almost vintage now. (laughs) Yeah, it's been almost 30 years ago. Yeah, I was gonna say it kind of makes me feel a little old. And this it takes place like this is squarely in the Bible Belt, where everyone goes to church on Sundays and then goes to your mama and them's for lunch. Right? Yep. And church culture back then, you know, so it's it's changed a little bit over the last decade or so. Yes. But back then, in these tight knit communities, especially, you know, it was interesting. If you grew up like I did, that involves gospel singings. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, Southern gospel. Like, oh, yeah. Think Bill Gaither. Yes. <laughs> Revivals, Sunday yep. school, youth group, Wednesday night prayer meeting, and Awanas. Right. You know, if you know, you know. Oh, yeah. Did y'all, did y'all ever do uh, tent revivals? Oh, yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> oh, and then uh, summer camps. Yes. Vacation Bible School was such a big deal, too. It was. And it's, even that's changed today. Some it has. some places only do like a one-day Bible school and thing. But, yeah. you know, we did it all week. Yes. We had some cookies the other night, and I pulled them out, and I said, these are Bible school cookies. Because it was just <laughs> those little sandwich cookies. Yep. And Tim looked at me. He's like, is that what you call these? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what, what they we are. Had at. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, if you know, you know, right? Yes. And the family that this murder impacted, the families that this murder impacted, were all very much a part of this culture, too. Okay. But growing up in the church... Doesn't make anybody a Christian. No. That obviously is a personal decision. You've probably heard people say they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk kind of thing. Or the Bible even says wolves in sheep's clothing to describe. So unfortunately, sometimes that can have dire consequences for the people who trust those people. Right. Can give Christians a real bad name. Yeah, it does at times. Mm-hmm. I follow some true crime pages on online, and unfortunately, when someone who professes to be a Christ follower commits an, uh, a heinous crime or a, something like that, it does see people coming out saying that religion ruins people. You know, it yeah. just it's, unfortunately yeah. it does like hurt. Such hypocrite. Yeah, it's it's a re- it really is a shame. So let me tell you what happened. Okay. On October ninth, nineteen ninety five. The Pleasant Garden Fire Department received a call from dispatch in reference to a house fire on Brandon Station Road, which at that time only had one house on it. 
Today, there's a cul-de-sac with about six or seven houses located there. But at this time, that house was secluded on the road. This is a rural community where pretty much everybody knows everybody. The firemen going out knew who, as soon as they were going out, where they were going into whose house they were going. Okay. When they arrived, the house was filled with smoke and smoke was billowing from the ranch-style house windows. This home was owned by Ted and Patricia Kimball. Patricia's brother, Reuben, had made the initial 911 call when he had gone by to check on her and discovered the smoke. He then sent his wife, Christy, over to get their, his father, Richard, who lived less than two miles away. Mm-hmm. They felt sure that Patricia was inside the house because her car was in the driveway. And What about the husband? Well, Patricia's husband, Ted, was at work. Oh. So he owned a building supply company in neighboring Greensboro. But he had also recently taken a second job in the evenings at a place called Precision Fabrics. And while at work, he had called home and he couldn't get Patricia on the phone. And then he called over to the church and he couldn't get her there. So he started getting a little concerned at that point. And he alerted her brother, Reuben, asking him to run out and check on her. So that's why Reuben had gone by to check. And that's when he discovered the fire. That's scary. It is. Well, the firemen were able to get inside and quell some of the smoke, and then they spotted flames in the hallway. As they worked their way through the house, one of them fell straight through a hole in the floor where the fire had been so intense it had burned a four-foot area straight down to the crawl space under Mm -hmm. the home. When this fireman managed to recover himself and gain his composure, he was very disturbed to realize he had landed on a body, a badly burned body. I mean, it was a horrifying discovery. Once they managed to get the fire contained and investigators from the Guilford County Sheriff's Department had reached the scene, immediately they realized this was not a random house fire that had been caused by faulty wiring or a kitchen mishap. Right. The burn pattern along the wall and winding through the house, along with a gas can found in the kitchen, was proof enough of that. They did not mention this to the family yet, though. So there was some accelerant used. Yes. And left behind. Right. I was going to say, what an idiot. Right. The scene, although grisly, also prompted many questions in the minds of the detectives. The house looked as if it had been ransacked, yet it was just a little too neat to be called ransacked. Dresser drawers had been pulled out, like in the master bedroom, but they had been kind of like stacked neatly. Hmm. And the mattress was halfway off of the bed, but it wasn't like a skew. It was just neatly slid off the side. Cash was left behind, as well as jewelry. So they're wondering, had the homeowner surprised a burglar? And if it was somebody who had broken in, they had missed taking the valuables. And they thought, well, maybe they were looking for something in particular. Or maybe they had just done a really bad job of staging a break-in. And who was the person they had found in the crawl space hole? They knew it was not the male homeowner, Ted, because he had been contacted at work, and by now he had arrived at the scene. In an effort to keep the family away from the scene while they investigated it, offers had asked the family to gather at their church, South Elm Street Baptist Church, which was about five miles away. Of course, the family already had a sinking feeling that Patricia was the one inside and that she had not made it out of the house. I wasn't clear about this. Did somebody call her husband and tell him about it, or he couldn't get a hold of her, so he was nervous and called her brother? Yes, he couldn't get a hold of her when he called home or the church, so he called the brother and asked him to go check on her. Does he have an alibi? I will get to that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I will answer you, yes, he does. Oh, okay. So when I said Ted had been contacted, you know, they they just called him back and said, hey, there's a house fire here. Right. That's what had happened with him. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you the disclaimer. I'm going to describe the scene a little bit more in detail. And it's somewhat graphic. So just, uh, you know, listener, be aware. When the firefighters were given the okay to retrieve the body, they scooped it up with a sheet and moved it into the carport. It was already charred. The left foot and lower right leg had burned almost completely away. When the body was flipped over because it had been found face down, they observed that the chest cavity had a burned hole exposing the insides and part of the stomach. Mm. The skin around the scalp, chest, and thighs was splitting open. And while observing the body, they spotted another notable detail. There was a small hole in the back of the head. Mm. The victim had not died from the fire. 
The fire had just been an attempted cover-up of a murder. Now investigators had the dreadful job of informing the family. We'll be back after a quick break. Ladies, I don't know about you, but over the last few years, Melly and I have noticed differences in our skin that have been pretty discouraging. You know, the inevitable signs of aging, fine lines, some wrinkles here and there, dull, dry skin and sunspots. Thankfully, there's a non-invasive treatment available without having to go under the knife. Tasha Bryles at Lakeside Integrative in High Point, North Carolina, offers a total skin package that includes radiofrequency microneedling and laser skin resurfacing that can be done right in her office in under an hour. It stimulates collagen growth and elastin that improves the surface and texture of your skin, as well as tightening it. The laser treats acne scars, minimizes large pores, and lessens, if not completely fades, sunspots. Melody and I were blessed to get this treatment in late fall. We're going back for our after photos within a couple of weeks, and we'll be sure to post them on our Facebook group. Melody was just saying how she felt like it gave her a fresh start for her skin routine. It even cleared up some precancerous skin lesions she had, and it faded my sunspots completely as well as brightened and tightened my skin. We're really thrilled with our results. Lakeside Integrative offers an array of other services for men and women, as well as fillers, laser hair removal, weight loss, hormone, and medical treatments. Don't walk. Run to the phone and call Lakeside Integrative to set up your appointment at 336-715-0007. Tell them Darlene and Melody from Hard Times and True Crime sent you. Why do people think they can get away with stuff like this? I know, but, but we see it so all the time. Often. It takes like, I feel like a certain level of arrogance to think everybody else gets caught, but I'm not gonna. Yes, you nailed it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about these homeowners. Okay. Patricia Blakely, Kimball, but her mm-hmm. maiden name was Blakely. She had grown up in Pleasant Garden in the family home on Branchwater Road. Besides some extended family, some cousins and that kind of thing. Her parents, Richard and Sheila, had stayed married until their two children, Reuben and Patricia, were grown. But for reasons not truly understood by Patricia, had then gone through a bitter divorce. Hmm. Now their mother, Sheila, lived with Reuben and his wife, Christy. And Richard, their father, lived in the family home and his mother, Bertha, lived there with him. Patricia had dreamed of growing up, finding a husband, and having the white picket fence that many little girls dream of growing up. But after high school, while her friends were starting to marry, she had yet to find the one. At times, she worried maybe her prince wouldn't show up. But by the time she was in her mid-20s, that concern was growing a little bit. Now, she didn't let that stop her from pursuing the other part of her dream, the white picket fence part. Patricia was adept at managing her finances, and she actually had bought her first house, the one at Brandon Station Road, at the age of 23, all on her own. But that didn't stop her from praying that the Lord would bring her a husband. Yeah. She was a devout Christian, and she had not given up hope that the Lord had somebody for her. She just had to trust him and his timing. Right. Now, Ted Kimball had grown up in the community of Pleasant Garden, too, from the time of around age 10. His parents had married young, 16 and 15. Mm, And so they, yeah, and they had their boys early on too. So they were really just kids themselves trying to raise kids. Yeah. His dad, Ronnie Kimball Sr., drank a lot in those days. And the relationship with his mother could be volatile at times. Until one day his father turned his life over to Christ. And then he enrolled at Liberty University and accepted a call into ministry. That's awesome. Once he finished school... He brought his wife, Edna, and their two boys, Ted and Ronnie Jr., to Julian, North Carolina, which is, you know, adjacent to... Yeah, um, my mother-in-law lived there. Oh, did she? Yeah. Okay, so you know where we're talking about. And so he took a job as senior pastor at Monette Road Baptist Church. Do you know where the Monette Road is? Okay. I don't think so. Ted and Ronnie Jr. had grown up in church as well, at times attending private Christian schools. The family had struggled financially over the years. Living on a meager pastor's salary. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's par for course. It is. When you're a pastor. And they lived in a single-wide mobile home for many years. And perhaps that's what contributed to Ted's work ethic. He had gone to work at Lyle's Building Supply before he could even drive. 
The owner, Gary Lyles, was a member of their church, and he had watched Ted grow up. He knew Ted had a drive to work because he wanted the nicer things in life that money could buy, things he didn't have growing up. But unfortunately, he also recognized that Ted's desire for things did not bleed over into a life of plenty. He knew how to make a dollar. He just didn't know how to save a dollar. He didn't really have an understanding of delayed gratification. Yeah. If he wanted something, he wanted it now, whether he could afford it or not. Sounds like me and you. (laughs) You're the saver. I'm the (laughs) spender. Ronnie Kimball Sr. and Edna also had the, the other son who was two years younger than Ted. And Ronnie Jr. was like the shy one. Okay. While Ted was like the self-confident go-getter, Ronnie was content to just stay in the shadows and kind of follow Ted. Yeah. Kind of like a younger brother does at mm-hmm. times. The members of their church observed the family dynamics over the years. And it was not unnoticed that Ted seemed to be favored, especially by his mother, Edna. Ted seemed to do no wrong while Ronnie took the fall for much of the boys' antics, even if they had been instigated by Ted. Aw. And some people said that he uh, was a little bit slow. That Ted was? Uh, Ronnie, the younger brother. Okay. Mm -hmm. The boys had mostly grown up socializing with their friends in their small community and church. But the congregation at Monette was aging, and there were not that many friends their age there. So after high school, Ted decided to start visiting the larger church, South Elm Street where many of his school buddies went. In South Elm, they actually had a thriving network of young people at this time. They even had like a college and career Sunday school class. Oh, wow. It was a great place to possibly meet a future spouse. Mm-hmm. When was I was looking? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> he was looking. Now, I will tell you, when I was researching this story and I start, I got to that part, I remembered I had a friend who went there during those years. Really? So I messaged her and asked her, hey, do you know about this story? And she did. And she had some pretty interesting things to, to share with me. So did she know the people she involved? She did. That's awesome. Yeah. So she did, she did go to church with them there. Okay. Ted had begun dating Janet Blakely. Okay. They had met in high school and had dated. Now out of school, Ted and Janet were attending South Elm together as a couple before long. Once Janet's cousin, Patricia, met Ted, though, she was smitten with him. And it was obvious to everyone around them, even Janet herself. (laughs) But Ted, he wasn't interested. He, He liked Patricia as a friend, but that was all. It was Janet that he wanted. At some point, though, he did end up moving in with Patricia, not as a couple, just as roommates. Oh. I mean, he was still seeing Janet. He was just roommates with um, Patricia. Patricia. Okay. Ted had been preparing to buy and take over Lyle's building supply where he worked when the owner, Gary, retired. And and Gary had kind of been grooming him for that all those years and kind of mentoring him. The only problem was that Gary did know Ted's penchant for spending. And he he knew he wasn't quite ready to be a business owner. So he put a stipulation on the deal. He would only sell it to Ted once Ted had settled down with a wife. Gary hoped that would, you know, curb some of his spending impulses and help him to get a better start in business. Right. So while Ted and Janet were dating, he had been mentioning marriage more and more. He was a little more motivated. Gotcha. But Janet had insisted she was not going to get married until she finished school. She wanted to finish Uh, Her parents actually wouldn't pay for school if she was married. Uh, They wanted her to finish. Yeah. She hadn't said this yet, but she wasn't sure if Ted was really the one for her. Mm. She was having some doubts. Some doubts. Gotcha. There were some red flags, and she had quite an independent streak of her own, and she wasn't really going to give that up for somebody so accustomed to having his way like Ted was. Yeah. Now, she hadn't told Ted that yet. So just before Thanksgiving in 1993... Ted proposed to Janet. Oh, gosh. Even though they had discussed it before, this time he presented her with a ring. And he seemed insistent on not wanting to wait too much longer. Janet was more hesitant, but Ted just continued to push. He even suggested that they just secretly get married and not tell her parents. Uh, what it's heard. When Janet questioned, like, why the rush? Ted told her that Gary Lyles was ready to sell the business, but he still would not sell it to Ted if he was not married. So was this really what the hurry was about? That's not really the motivation a girl wants when she gets a proposal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not really about you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She was still very uncomfortable. And so not only did she turn him down, but she actually broke things off with him. Mm. She um, she did tell him when she came home in a couple of weeks from college for Thanksgiving 
they would talk about it a little more. He kind of had a little bit of a temper and he, he was upset. And so she wanted him to have time to cool down before she really, yeah. I guess, finally ended it. So just as planned, Janet did return home for the holidays a couple of weeks later. She was at South Am that Sunday for preaching. So when she got there for preaching at 11, she saw the people coming in from who had been at Sunday school earlier. They were all coming in together. She saw Ted come in and he sat down with Patricia just a few rows ahead of her. She didn't even think they had seen her, but she would, you know, speak to him later. Yeah. At the opening of the service, you know, they start with announcements. And that Sunday, an announcement was made that there was a newly engaged couple in the church. Ted and Patricia, they were engaged. Mm. Janet was shocked to hear that announcement. He had just proposed to her two weeks before. Yeah. So it's like, okay, he's definitely just using her. Yeah. What's more is that when she finally saw the ring on Patricia's hand, it was the very same one he had offered to her. Oh, my goodness. Can you? I mean, what gall. What a jerk. Yeah. Janet could not get out of that church fast enough. She was out of there. Um, She just, you know, she was shocked at the quick way he had moved on after the breakup. But she was also really concerned for her cousin because she knew that there was an ulterior motive there. That would make things awkward, maybe, too, between her and her cousin. It was awkward for a while. She did admit that things were, you know, they they weren't mad at each other, but things were a little bit awkward awkward and tense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on Patricia's part, she Mm -hmm. was ecstatic. While she and Ted had been like in the roommate stage and he was Mm -hmm. seeing her cousin, they had become friends and they had talked a lot. To her, it didn't seem odd that he had moved on from Janet so quickly because they had started with a friendship already. They hadn't just met. Right. But he had been encouraging her to exercise and work on herself. She had taken those words to heart. She signed up for aerobics classes, makeup classes, and she had recently gone through quite a transformation. She had lost a lot of weight, changed her hair. She got new clothes, started wearing makeup. Now, my friend, she described her. She said, yes, she was always a very uh, sweet girl, kind, friendly. Everybody liked her. She was a little quiet. She did say that the people at the church had noticed that Patricia had started wearing makeup and desperately trying to lose weight. Ted, he, she described him as having an athletic build, and he dressed tonight. He was had a char. He was a charmer too. Yeah. And Janet, on the other hand, she was like stick thin, tall, blonde, athletic build. And so now, Patricia had blossomed from being like kind of a plain Jane into a very attractive young lady. And the changes did not go unnoticed by Ted. I mean, after all, he was the one who had kind of been pushing for him. Her changes had been instigated by her desire to attract Ted. Right. After being in the shadow of Janet's athletic fit frame and good looks, Patricia had found her own way into Ted's line of sight. And within six months of the engagement, the day arrived. Patricia and Ted Kimball were married at his father's church on Monette Road in May 1994. Patricia had found her prince charming, and she was sure the wait had been so worth it. She couldn't be happier. Oh, bless her. Okay, so now let's go back to what happened in 1995. After leaving the burned house, Detective Jim Church headed to meet Patricia's family, where they were gathered at South Elm Street Baptist Church. He couldn't yet confirm that the body found inside the house was Patricia, until the autopsy was performed. But deep down, they all knew. He had to confirm there was a person who did not survive the fire, but he also had to let them know about the gunshot wound that had been found behind her ear. He had to ask them if they knew anyone who would want to harm Patricia. At least he wouldn't have to do this alone. He was accompanied by Detective Sergeant David DeBerry of the Guilford County Major Crimes Unit. When they arrived at the church parking lot, the lot was full with distraught family and friends of Patricia's and Ted's. That's so sad. The authorities met with Ted in the sanctuary of the church. They questioned him at that point on whether he owned guns, to which he informed them that he had three. Later, he would change the details about how many guns he owned and where he kept them. Of course he would. The officers did confirm that at least one gun was kept in the house a 45 caliber Glock, locked and loaded. It was at this meeting that officers also questioned Ted about the existence of any current life insurance policies. Ted told them they had two policies. He then seemed to remember that, no, they only had one. They had canceled one recently. 
Patricia only had the one that was carried on her at her place of employment. He couldn't remember, though, if it was valued at 50000 or 100000 In the following days, the family had to go through the gut-wrenching process of planning a funeral. Ted, along with his family and Patricia's family, met at the funeral home. It was there that Ted announced he was planning to have Patricia cremated, claiming that's what Patricia had wanted. Poop. Right. Yeah, Yeah, right. Well, her family didn't believe it any more than you did. They had a hard time because she had never told them that before. Yeah. But Ted callously remarked, well, really, what's the point? She was practically already cremated in the fire. Oh, my gosh. Right. What a jerk. What a jerk. Was her family suspecting him immediately? There were some people who did suspect him. Okay. When officers returned to the fire damaged house, they found a forty five caliber Glock and it just happened to have one round missing from the magazine. Hmm. They found it curious that the other two guns that Ted had mentioned were not found in the house. And then later when they questioned him about that, he insisted, no, I only told you I had two. I just wanted a third one. And I'm just wanting to buy it. And I never told you I kept them both in the house. I keep one at my store. Hmm. The sheriff's department refused to tell the media any details about the case until the autopsy had come back. But that didn't stop neighbors from talking. And before long, the word had spread that Patricia had been shot before the fire. When the news teams bombarded the sheriff's office to confirm the rumors, the officers remained tight-lipped. The longer they could contain the details, the better chance they had of recovering clues before the murderer clammed up and started covering his or her tracks. And that wasn't all the neighbors were talking about. While it was hard to believe that anybody would have a reason to kill the gentle, good-natured woman, Sunday school teacher even, word started getting around that some suspected Ted may have had something to to do with it. This was just small-town gossip at this point, and that's how I heard it. My daddy's wife, I remember her saying, yeah, did you hear about that couple up the road? And we knew them, and -and so-and-so went to church with them, and we know that he did it. Oh, wow. They were all, like, people were saying that. Okay, so before it was official, it was pretty well known. Yes. Okay. And that's even if it becomes official. Right, right. (laughs) Well, it wasn't long before officers received an interesting phone call. An unidentified woman called to inform them that she was a very close friend of Patricia's. She said that in the days leading up to the murder, Patricia had been dismayed at how the marriage was going. She had only been married about a year and a half, and she already felt that Ted seemed tired of her and no longer wanted to spend any time with her. She even suspected that he had taken that second job just to avoid spending time with her. Oh, that's so sad. It is, after she had looked so forward to getting married. And she was becoming worried that he may want her out of his way. The mystery caller claimed that Patricia had warned her that if anything happened to her, Ted was the one responsible. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. While officers had already been suspicious of Ted to some extent because, like, his answers really didn't quite ring true. Yeah. That claim definitely focused them in his direction. And that wasn't all. She also informed them that Patricia's worries were stemmed from discovering that Ted had taken a life insurance policy out on her without her consent. And when they were asking, what do you like, what do you mean? How do you do that? She said, well, he had forged Patricia's name to it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So this was pretty credible because, I mean, yeah, they they can check it out, right? Exactly. And they did. The detectives had a sit down with the life insurance salesman who had taken the application from Ted on behalf of Patricia. Ted had told him, well, Patricia's really busy at work and she just doesn't have the time to get by here. So I'm going to handle all the paperwork. But they did say, well, she has to sign it. He said, "Okay, well, just leave it and I'll have her do that. However, what he didn't realize, I guess, was that in order to take out life insurance, you there has to be some kind of a medical exam. Usually they'll take some blood work, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So when the life insurance company contacted Patricia to set up an appointment for that, she was clearly surprised about the policy. Uh, Yeah. She had no idea that the application had been submitted and was obviously upset about that. Turned out that policy was worth $100,000, but it had a rider on it that in case of accident, it would pay out $200,000. Oh, my goodness. Well, without the medical exam, that policy was not able to be written. And that it all had just taken place within a few days before that. 
And so Ted was not aware that that policy was not enforced yet. Okay, so all this had happened just before she was murdered? Just before. Oh, my gosh. What a complete moron. Mm-hmm. When officers contacted the agent a couple of days after the fire, he actually reported that, oh, Ted just called this morning asking when he could collect on the policy. He had already lied, right? Yes. And said that they yes. only had the one policy. Okay. Yes. Ted was going to be sorely disappointed to find out there was not going to be a payout. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That that policy was not even in force. I wish I could have seen the look on I his know. face. I know. I know. The mystery caller was not the only one who was concerned either about Ted's possible involvement. You asked earlier about her family. Mm -hmm. Patricia's brother and sister-in-law, they also did harbor their own concerns about Ted. It was something about the way Ted had been behaving the night of the fire just didn't sit right with them. You know, even when Ted had called her brother to have him go check, he sounded really panicked. As if, like, I'm so worried about her, I can't get in touch with her. And it just didn't quite ring true either. Right, especially because he doesn't even act like he cares about. And it's just weird. Like, my husband, the first thing he, like, that's just not what men typically do. And I I did try to put myself, like, thinking, okay, but back then, everybody didn't have cell phones. Yeah. Um, But still, I don't think your mind is going to immediately go to, go check on them. I can't find them. No, I mean, now, to be honest, my mother, we're like that. Well, women my are. My mom couldn't get a hold of me the other day. She's like calling my sister, my husband. <laughs> Darlene didn't answer her phone. <laughs> but my husband, yeah. like, I could be gone all night and he would be like, she's probably went to visit her sister. <laughs> yeah, well, I will say, like, my mind, when, when I first got married, if my husband was late coming home, I'm like, oh, no, he's in yeah. a ditch somewhere and he can't, oh, yeah. like, he's unconscious and nobody knows nose and he's bleeding out so i yeah. do, i am like that but just but men, men don't typically, typically do that yeah. i don't think my husband's ever worried that i was laying somewhere in a ditch no <laughs> i'll be like were you worried about me he's like nah i figured you were you i know. would hear something if something was wrong exactly <laughs> so her family had uh voiced their their fears to the investigators as well but okay. yeah they just knew something wasn't quite quite yeah. right that intuition is usually pretty spot on Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, Ted had kind of been doing some eyebrow raising things anyway. His daddy's church took up a love offering for him right after the murder because, you well, know, churches do that. You yeah. know, if you're going through a hard time, we'll take up a special love offering. Which I feel bad for his dad. It's not his fault. Right. Golly. And Ted used that to buy a new motorcycle. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Can you? I mean, that that's a lot of uh, audacity right there. And he started bringing other girls to church. What? Yeah. Which does not scream the behavior of a grieving husband. No. Oh, my goodness. And I'm not talking about months later. I'm talking about shortly after. That's terrible. Yeah. What a slap in her family's face. Can you imagine how they must have felt? No. No. And then there was Janet, the cousin, who's also the ex-girlfriend. She actually was asked, the investigators went to see her. She confided to them that Ted was the kind of person to push hard for what he wants without regard to anyone else. Uh, She said she had known him to scratch his own car and then file a false insurance claim. Oh, Um, wow. He knew how to get what he wanted, whether it was through falsehood or force, Mm. whatever it took. And she was actually able to give the officers the name of someone else that they should contact uh, about a story that had happened concerning Ted in high school. The officers went to see this young lady, and I'm going to call her just by the letter M. Detective Church was able to have a sit down with this young lady, M. She recounted quite an eye-opening event. She, in high school back in 1989, had become pregnant with Ronnie Jr.'s baby. Ted and Ronnie drove her to an abortion clinic. She was having second thoughts already, And really, she wanted to talk to Ronnie alone about the predicament. Like, are we sure we want to do this? However, Ted wouldn't even let them speak to each other alone. He was in control of that situation from the get-go. He drove them to the clinic. And when Em hesitated and wasn't sure she wanted to get out of the car and told him it was none of his business, he threatened her with a gun. What? She said he grabbed her by the hair, shoved a gun to her head, and called her a few choice names and told her, our daddy is an effing preacher and you ain't going to embarrass my family. You got that? Oh, my gosh. And it turns out he may have had more to risk than embarrassment anyway, because it seemed like this baby actually could have possibly been Ted's, <gasps> not Ronnie's. 
But Ronnie was not aware of that, and neither of them told him. Wow. This girl, she got in line and did real quick and did what she was told, fearing that if she didn't, Ted would make good on his threat. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, he's capable then of whatever. Yeah, very capable. So with all of those mounting, circumstantial, Mm -hmm. to be sure, but definitely red flags... How, I'm sorry, how old was he at the time of the murder? He was mid-20s. I believe Patricia was 28 and he was 25. Okay. He was a few years younger. Okay. They definitely have honed in on Ted now. Okay. And so they, they're going to check his alibi. Yeah. He had claimed to be at work during the evening when the fire had started. And sure enough, there was actually proof of him clocking in and being at work during that time. So his alibi checked out. But that didn't deter their suspicions. There was just too much other stuff that made that questionable. Uh, I hope it's not his little brother. Well, investigators started oh, wondering, gosh. <laughs> maybe he had an accomplice, but who who would that be? <sighs> and of course, their first person to check was his younger brother, Ronnie Jr. Did Ronnie have an alibi? I don't want him to have done it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you about Ronnie. Let me tell you about him. So Ronnie was now a Marine. Oh. He, he's stationed at Camp Lejeune at this time. Okay, my son. That's where he's. Yeah. However, during the weekend of that fire, the fire happened on a Monday. The weekend prior to that, Ronnie had actually been in town. He had happened to be home in Julian with his wife, Kimberly, on the weekend. Okay. And that Monday had not returned yet to base. When his whereabouts on the day of the murder were checked out, there was a space of two hours between 4 and 6 p.m., which was the very time when Patricia was considered to have been killed, that he there was no accounting for where he was. Mm. They had talked to his wife and his in-laws, and they had said, yeah, he was here doing this at this time, but nobody really had anything to, to say, oh, I saw him during this space of time from 4 to 6. So now it was time that they had to pay him a visit. When Ronnie was questioned, he acted very odd. At first, he, he wouldn't give a straight answer for anything, and he just kept saying, I, I can't believe anybody would want to hurt Patricia. He just kept going back and forth between being, like, animated and then nervous and then sad, and he was just kind of all over the place. Still, at no point was he able to account for his time between four and six. He would say, I was working on uh, underpinning my trailer with my in-laws, but they he did wasn't. not confirm that those two hours that he was there. Okay. Finally, during that interview, he got nervous and he just got up and left abruptly. Hmm. After this, Sergeant DeBerry drove to the beach where Gary Lyles had retired. Gary was the one who had sold Ted that business, and he was surprised to hear that Ted had not gone to speak with the detectives yet. They had been trying to get him to come in, and he wouldn't. Yeah. Gary had told him, you need to get your butt up there and talk to them. And Ted had assured him, yeah, I will, but he hadn't. During the conversation with Gary... His wife, Rose, suddenly became very upset, and she hesitantly shared something very important with the investigators. It was actually a bombshell. The Friday before the Monday that Patricia was killed, Patricia had called their house very upset. She was terrified, actually. She had found out about that deceit regarding the life insurance policy. Right. And was rightfully worried what that might mean for her. She confided, Rose, I'm telling you this, in case anything ever happens to me, it's Ted. And they had chalked it up to overreacting. Oh, no. I can't believe they wouldn't have said something already. And maybe the husband, like, just couldn't believe it. Like, he had known him since he was a kid. He was like a father figure to him. Yeah, and was just like, no, he... And that's that's basically what he said. He told them during that interview, he said, I don't want to think what I'm thinking right now. And they were like, do you think he could have done this? He's like, I don't want to. I don't want to believe it, but it's looking like it. Mm. But he should have have came forward with that. Yeah. But her Uh story matched perfectly with that mystery caller. Two people had that same account. Now, here's some more. This is how much gall this guy has. In November that year, about, so it's like, you know, five, six weeks after the murder. Mm Mm-hmm. Ted decided to do an interview on the local news. Hmm. In that interview, he claimed that the authorities were targeting him, and he offered $20,000 from her life insurance money, which he didn't get. So glad. (laughs) To anybody who could help find out who really killed his wife. He claimed he had been cooperating with officers, but he actually hadn't even gone in to talk with them after they had requested him several times. He struck out at officers saying... They were focused on him and not finding the real killer. He said something like, it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty in this country, not guilty until proven innocent. Hmm. 
my gosh, he's so arrogant. So arrogant. He just left a gas can. I guess used the gun that. Well, did that ever? Ca- okay, okay. There, I'm you'll, curious about that. Yeah, keep listening. Keep listening. Okay. But that was a very brazen interview. Yeah. And in the, even in the interview, he would go from being like mild spoken and grieving over his wife to like being mad and then kind of cocky at times. Mm. I mean, it was kind of bizarre. Uh, I read several accounts about it in the news and record. And I'm like, man, he he's kind of. Yeah. yeah. Frustratingly, though, with all that mounting evidence pointing directly at Ted and the officer's suspicion that Ronnie was probably an accomplice, they didn't really have any physical evidence. There weren't any fingerprints to be had because of the fire. Right. No DNA, no witnesses, like nothing concrete. And they were worried that if they if they got him on the life insurance false thing, that that would mess up the homicide case and he would get away with murder if he truly okay. did this. So they were really hesitant to pursue that yeah. angle. And that was really the only thing they had. Okay. But they didn't want to use that yet. That makes and, sense. Yeah. And so time is like ticking by, no arrest. Her family, you know, they're beginning to question, are they going to close the case? Like, yeah. uh, they're just concerned. They don't want anybody to get away with it. At this point, the sheriff's department decides to bring in special agent of the SBI, Harold Pendergrass. He's going to assist with the case. At this point, when he comes on the case, they go back to Camp Lejeune to question Ronnie again. And this time, Ronnie seems almost ready to open up. He gets mm. very, very close to telling them something. They were really sure he was getting ready to give a confession. Yeah. But then suddenly he just got scared and he ended that interview abruptly again. And just, I mean, it was another dead end. It seemed there was going to be no breaks in the case. And they really desperately needed a break in the case. Somebody who knew something who could put somebody somewhere. Right. They needed something to go on. And 15 months after the murder, one came. Ronnie Jr. and his wife, Kim, they took a trip to Lynchburg, Virginia to visit some friends. Ronnie had met this guy, Mitch Whidden, while he was stationed at Camp Lejeune, and the two had stayed in touch. So now Mitch is enrolled at Liberty University, too. While Ronnie and Kim visited, they took a tour of the university as well. Since Ronnie was getting ready to get out of the military, he claimed that he felt the same call of God into ministry that his dad had. Hmm. <laughs> not everybody's called by God. No. My my old preacher used to say that some were mama called and daddy sent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Have you heard that? Yes. And so perhaps that, I mean, yeah. you know, perhaps that was the case. We're not sure yet with Ronnie, but Mitch and his wife, Dee, they had met with the Kimballs and given them that tour of the campus. They were trying to help them get started. Yeah. And it was to Ronnie's great excitement that they actually got to meet the university chancellor, Dr. Jerry Falwell. While he was there. And you know, like in Southern Baptist circles in the 90s, that was like meeting a celebrity. Yeah. Yeah, That was a pretty big deal then. Yes. Okay. So also during the visit, Mitch and his wife, Dee, invited the Kimballs to stay their last night with them instead of a hotel. When they got back to the Widdens' place, Kim called home to let her parents know where they were. Again, they didn't really have the cell phone. I mean, we did have some cell phones then, but it was very new. Like, I, I think I got my first one in 90. Two. Okay. You got yours way before I well, got mine. <laughs> it wasn't a cell phone. It was a car phone. It was one of those what bags. <laughs> was it a big one? Yeah, it was a big bag and yeah. you put it in your car. <laughs> yeah, it was that. <gasps> it was then that Kim's mother informed them that Detective Church had called them again and he really wanted to talk to them. When Ronnie heard this, he like went off the deep end, throwing himself on the floor like a child and having a tantrum. Hmm. He, he was laying in the floor and whining. Why? Why won't he leave us alone? He's never going to leave us alone. Very That's bizarre. Weird. Yeah, because it, your sister-in-law was murdered. Exactly. And laying in the floor like a child, it was just like, it That's was very weird. odd and uncomfortably awkward yeah. for his wife and the hosting couple. I mean, oh, in front of all of them. I was thinking in front of his parents. No, in front of their friends that they were staying with. Oh, that with. is weird. Can you imagine? No. So, yeah, it was pretty awkward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so later that night, Mitch and Ronnie, they're alone somewhere else in the house. They are studying and, and discussing the Bible. And Ronnie, he begins to second min- second guess his ministry calling. I was like, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And Mitch was like really surprised. Um, 
And but Ronnie is like going on and on about how I've got some things in my past. Mitch, you know, he's assuring him, well, we all have stuff in our past, but as long as you've asked forgiveness and yeah, but Ronnie, he couldn't let it go. It was just eating him up inside. Yeah. It seemed that he needed to get something off of his chest. He asked Mitch, can you read me something from the Bible? Just something. And so Mitch opens his Bible and reads him the first thing he comes to. And it's this from Psalm 7. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yes, I have delivered him that without cause is my enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay my honor in the dust, O Lord. Oh, whoa. Oh. Now, I'm sorry, but that would be like, uh, that's yeah. that's definitely a message to, to me. Like, yes. And it was. He was visibly agitated. And at that point, he just blurted out, I did it. I killed Patricia. Oh, my God. And he went on and explained to Mitch how he had done it. So he told him exactly what he had done, and he confessed that Ted had paid him to do it. Oh, golly, what a terrible big brother. I mean, not that he's he's a grown man, but yeah, golly, that's uh, but I doubt that ever would have happened had it not been right. Because again, Ted kind of overpowered, like he mm-hmm. he followed in Ted's footsteps and did what he was told. And Ted seems very manipulative very. and very dominant, probably. Absolutely, yep. Now, Mitch, he's shocked. Can't really believe it. And now he's thinking, uh, these people are staying in my house. Uh, Yeah. And I have a wife and a baby. So he's kind of like freaking out on the inside. Like, what do I do? What do I do? And he's telling Ronnie, you got to turn yourself in. And and Ronnie's like, he's not going to hear that. He's like, he refused. And one second, he's like really despondent and considering suicide. And the next minute, he's like nervous, but kind of making justifications for what he did. Okay, does his wife know? Did his wife know? I do not believe she knew. Okay. And I'll and remind me to come back to that later. Okay, yeah. End. But I don't believe she knew about any of that. He actually tried to justify it by saying it was her time to go, so it was going to happen anyway, right? Uh, what? I know. I mean, like, it was, it was just... It was off the chain there. That's weird. He, he was clearly unstable. And Mitch didn't know what else to do. So he's like, he knelt to pray with him. But the whole time on the inside, he's thinking, I got to get these people out of my house. Oh, yeah. They did end up staying the night. And believe me, the next morning could not come quick enough for Mitch. I thought um, he slept with one eye open. Yeah, he did. He was afraid to leave his wife and baby like Aww. while he slept. So he stayed close by them, protecting them yes. just in case. So the next morning when he heard them leaving early, he was relieved, to say the least. And, did and he break his neck getting to a phone? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you what he did. This was like, he broke his neck to do something. Let me tell you what it was. Okay. It's like, he's like realizing, I've got to tell this, but I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Yes. He went to the one person who he thought would, could tell him what to do. And that was Dr. Jerry Falwell. Oh, my goodness. He goes to the the chancellor's at a game, watching a game, and he goes and wants to speak to him. And, of course, there are, like, security there. Right. And he's probably, like, this guy probably don't know him. Yeah. And they're, like, saying, he's watching a game. You can't see him right now. Make an appointment. And he's like, no, I got to see him. And he's making quite a scene. And Jerry Falwell sees him. And so he's like, oh, no, let him through. I remember meeting him yesterday. Oh, wow. He remembered him. He tells him, like that guy that I met that you met yesterday, he confessed this to me last night. I mean, he he laid it all out there. And isn't that bizarre? That is crazy. Shortly after that meeting, detectives in Greensboro, they received a call from the university, an attorney named Jerry Falwell Jr., the chancellor's son, who was an attorney for the school, explained, There's a young man in my office who has some pretty important information he needs to share with you. Wow. That is insane. That is insane. That was a crazy twist. Yeah. And Falwell Jr. has since been embroiled in his own controversies, Mm -hmm. as you're well aware. But this is not the episode for that. So I'm going to move on. (laughs) So that's what's going on with Ronnie. Let's go back to Ted for a minute. During the 15 months since the murder, Ted had gotten himself into some other unsavory actions. I guess he didn't get that insurance money he needed so badly. Mm Mm-hmm. He had graduated from fraudulent insurance claims into downright theft, influencing some of his employees at the building supply store into helping him. They were going to construction sites, businesses, homes, even churches in the area, stealing construction supplies. 
and then in materials and then taking them back to his store to resell. Oh, my gracious. What? Can you? I mean, can you believe this guy? And unbeknownst to him, he was about to get caught on those crimes as well. Due to Mitch's admission to the detectives about Ronnie's confession in March, that was that was the break they needed. Yeah. So in March of 97, authorities, they got all of their paperwork ready to go and they got arrest warrants for both boys. And now all they had to do was serve them. And there was some concern about apprehending Ted because they knew he was known to be armed. Yeah. On April 1st, 1997, officers in five different cars made a plan to arrest Ted on his way to work. Now, Ted did actually stop for the officers without incident. Uh, His mother was in the car. He was giving her a ride to work. And he asked, have I been speeding? They informed him that he was being arrested for murder. And he told his mother, call my attorney and was taken off in handcuffs. And I have to tell you, when I was reading that account in the paper and in this book that I used for this, that was like watching a movie for me because he was apprehended on his way to work, which went right by my daddy's house. Really? Right on the road. He was arrested right there on the road where my dad lived. They're naming these intersections and landmarks. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. that. Yeah. So that was kind of crazy for me. I'm like, oh, my, that's crazy. And while Ted was being apprehended in Greensboro, Ronnie was being arrested on base at Camp Lejeune and transported back to Greensboro. Nine days later, both men were indicted and charged with the following. Ronnie, he was charged with first-degree arson, conspiracy to commit murder, and first-degree murder. Ted was charged with conspiracy to commit arson, conspiracy to commit murder, first-degree murder, breaking and entering, felony larceny, and possession of a weapon of mass destruction which was really a silencer for a gun that he had. Mm. Both were denied bond, and both cases were marked capital cases, which meant they could be tried for the death penalty. But the trials would be at least a year later in the future. It was going to take a while. Yeah. Rufus, you just want to be on the podcast. At one point, the state's case against Ronnie was even compromised when he began having relations with one of the female jailers. (laughs) Whoa, Keep in mind, these, he's married at the boys. time. Wow. Yeah, the preacher's kids, right? Mm-hmm. The PK. Sorry, all you preacher's kids. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> all of my friends that are preacher's kids, they're yeah, the ones that just... even told me that. <laughs> Letters were found in his cell between the two, and authorities were concerned that she might have shared confidential information. They didn't end up finding any evidence that she had. She, it turned out she didn't actually have any information about that case because they had been very careful to keep things on the down low. Okay. Uh, She was terminated, though, and charged with sex with a custodial. Yeah. Which I'm glad they did that. And Ronnie's wife, Kimberly, she actually stood by him through the trial. I think she really believed in his innocence. I think she did. But after that happened and she found out about it, she filed for divorce. Yeah. Well, good for her. Yeah, I don't blame her. So 1998 comes Mm -hmm. and Ronnie's trial begins first. On one side of the courtroom were the supporters of Patricia, her friends, her family, her fellow church members at South Elm Street. And on the other side were the supporters of the Kimballs, mostly the members of Monnet Road Baptist Church. I mean, this courtroom was really a picture of a divided community. Yeah. And the prosecutors began to lay out the case. They told how Ronnie had borrowed Ted's truck earlier that morning. At approximately 1.30 in the afternoon, he had put gas in it, as evidenced by a receipt that he had left in the truck. And then he had gone to Lyle's building supply store and met with Ted and spoke with him. And witnesses in the store had seen him then. And he had left around 3.15 by his own admission. Okay. Well, Patricia had left work a little early that day. She had left around 3.30 telling her co-workers she was going to go home and mow and do some yard work. The theory was that Ronnie had arrived at the home before Patricia, slipped in the door, and lay in wait for her there to ambush her. When Patricia arrived home, she entered the back door, walked through the kitchen and down the hall toward the master bedroom to let her dog out of the bathroom, where he stayed while she was at work. And she never made it to the bathroom because she was shot within seconds of entering her home and died immediately of that that gunshot wound to the head. I'm glad it was quick anyway. Yes. And she dropped right there in the hall and fell face forward. The investigators did say she didn't suffer. She never saw it coming. Unfortunately, her dog never got out of the bathroom and he was burned up in that fire. That is so sad. That is very sad. 
Well, Ronnie then proceeded to douse the area and her body with gasoline, and he started the fire to cover up. And he left her body to burn, hoping to cover up the crime of the gunshot wound. Mm -hmm. They said the fire burned so hot where her body was. That's why it burned that four foot place in the floor and why her her body went through. Mm. He then left and went home where he proceeded to install underpinning on his trailer with his father-in-law. Golly. It does take a certain type of person to be able to do that. It really does. While that was going on, Ted... He had left his building supply store around 5.30 and met his mother at Biscuitville and then gone to work at Precision Fabrics, punching in around 6.10 p.m. It's almost like he built that alibi. He had his Mm -hmm. mother there. And it was around 8.30 p.m. when he made the call to Reuben, claiming to be worried about Patricia because he couldn't reach her. And that's when he asked Reuben to go check. And then Reuben arrived about 10 minutes later and, and discovered the house on fire. Wow. One of the key witnesses at that trial was Mitch Whidden, whom Ronnie had confessed to. But all in the courtroom were stunned when Dr. Jerry Falwell himself took the stand as a witness. Really? He did. I kind of feel like after his testimony, many of the congregation of Monette Road probably lost a little faith in the Kimball side because, again, mm-hmm. yeah. he's practically a celebrity, like you said. Yes. I'm sure I'm sure his testimony held some weight. Uh, yeah. If anybody's going to sway him, yes. it would be him. After six weeks of testimony and just over five hours of jury deliberation, Ronnie Kimball Jr. was found guilty on all charges against him, including first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Later, outside the courthouse, Ronnie's mother, Edna, began screaming at Patricia's family, Murderers! You're a bunch of murderers! You did this! Huh? Yeah. Can you, can you, I can't even wrap my mind around that. What? Wow. She, I, you know what, honestly, I, I blame her for a lot of her sons. You know how I feel about mothers who baby coddled their sons. Yes. And yeah, I think she probably turned Ted. I mean, he's taken her to work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He sounds like a serious mama's boy. Mm -hmm. And she has probably puffed him up to where he just feels like he's, I mean. Entitled. Yeah. You know, and the reason you feel that way is because we see so many cases like that where yes. when you start researching the past and they're growing up, we see that happens so much. And mm-hmm. we've, we've covered episodes like that. Yeah. And those guys typically have no, there's no humility. That's right. But still, to me, the gall of her to say that to that other family. And that not is only unbelievable. is unbelievable. And it's cruel. Yes. Like, they are the ones who have killed this young woman. And this is the family that's grieving the murder of their child, and you're calling them murderers? And this is a pastor's wife. And while I know that people are people, we should be able to hold them to a higher standard. They should be held to a higher standard. I think so. And so I think that's pathetic. Yeah. Okay, so let's circle back to Ted. Okay. While he was awaiting for his trial, he was not sitting idly by. In fact, he was rather busy. Sergeant DeBerry, Detective Church, and SBI agent Pendergrass had gotten word that an inmate at the prison where Ted was being held in Salisbury, North Carolina, this inmate wanted to talk to them. He had some information. Hmm. Imagine their surprise when he began to tell them of an escape plan that Ted was plotting. And it was not just some pie-in-the-sky, wishful-thinking plan. It was a very well-thought-out plan. He had detailed floor plans of the prison that he was currently in, floor plans of the Guilford County Courthouse, and the jail. And he had offered that inmate $100,000 to knock off some people that he had on a hit list. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, sometimes uh, to get a lighter sentence or whatever, some people will say, oh, yeah, they'll turn over. Yeah, but sometimes they're just making stuff up. Yeah. Well, he wasn't because when they obtained a search warrant for Ted's cell, they found everything the inmate had told them they would find. Wow. So he, it was corroborated. It was. That hit list was like a movie plot. Get this. Um, yeah, I want to hear this. Ted had listed Every name that he wanted to be knocked off. And beside every name, he had listed the way in which he wanted them to be killed. What? That included the Lyles couple, the ones who he had grown up with that was like a father to him. 
because they were going to testify in the trial. Are you serious? I'm serious. Mitch Whitten and his wife, his employees who had told about the burglaries, anybody who basically was going to testify at his trial against him was on that list. And then the the ways he wanted them to die, electrocution, strangulation. Oh. A robbery gone bad. My goodness. This guy's evil. He is pure, straight up evil. If there was any question of his mental state before, now they knew he was also straight up crazy. Right. And so, eight charges of solicitation to commit murder were added to his account. Good. Yes. I wonder what mommy thinks about that. I'm sure she thinks he's innocent. They're pinning it on him. They're framing him for something. The authorities called a press conference to warn the public about that scheme. Especially the ones who might be targeted by Ted. Uh, yeah. And due to new information, there was going to be a hearing for a change of venue. His lawyer said, you didn't need to hold a press conference for that. You're trying to sway the, any potential jurors. I know. They're trying to protect people. Right. Okay. So now it's during, they, so they have this hearing to have a change of venue. Mm-hmm. And at this hearing, Ted, once again, surprised everyone by changing his plea to admitting guilt in Patricia's murder. Now, he still didn't show any remorse. And his own attorneys didn't see that coming, and they were trying to talk him out of it. But by admitting guilt, he was no longer at risk of the death penalty. Mm. And so now his worst thing that he's going to face is going to be life in prison. Also during that hearing, Patricia's family asked if they could have her ashes returned to them, and Ted agreed to do so. Two months later, just days before he was going to get sentenced, he surprised everybody yet again by requesting to reverse his plea. Like his attorneys were probably so done with him. And then the judge promptly denied that request Good. and sent him to be sentenced anyway. Good. I was thinking, what the world could he be trying to do by that stunt? Does he think, well, maybe I can convince a jury? I'm so good at charming Probably. people. I can, if I just talk to this jury, I can Probably. convince them. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. He's good at manipulating and he probably mm-hmm. feels like I'll just turn on the charm. Yeah. It takes a while for people like that, you know, to get found out. But when they do, it's uh-huh. usually such a doozy that... Yes. You're like, oh my gosh. Like you this can't... person is an animal. Right. Like you can't help but see the truth yeah. right in front of you at that yeah. point. Yeah. But they still think yeah. Uh, yeah, they see themselves somehow still as the victims. Yeah. So finally it does go to the sentencing hearing. And now this time Ted doesn't have the support he had before. All those good people at Monet Road could no longer deny he something's gone yeah. terribly wrong with these two boys. The support's dropping. Pretty quickly. In fact, after the trial, the pastor did actually have to resign from his position. I mean, in shame. Gary Lyles, the former mentor to Ted, the one who sold him the business, Mm -hmm. he was asked to be a character witness at this hearing for Ted. (laughs) The one he was going to have off? Yes, the one on the hit list. I was going to say, do you remember that he was on that hit list? (laughs) So can you believe this guy? He's asking him. And of course, uh, Lyle's denied. Uh, He declined that invitation. Now, I will say my friend that remembered that went to church with Mm -hmm. him, her husband also was asked to, he had seen Ted the day of the murder. Right. At one point, he was asked if he would testify that he had seen him, I guess, kind of like corroborate an alibi or something. Right. But then in a few days after that, that's when new information came to light and people started realizing he probably did this. And so he declined also to witness at that well, trial. Good. Yeah. Good. This guy's unbelievable. Yeah. So I know he really is. So this time when the judge asked Ted about wanting to reverse his plea and all of that. He said his attorneys pressured him to enter the plea and they, he informed the judge, I want to speak for myself this time. And then he starts giving them his sob story. He's like, he was fearful for his life when he consented to that. The cops, those bad cops were threatening him. And they are the ones who made him implicate his own brother. Hmm. Just a bunch of garbage. Yeah. And not even the judge, not even he believed that he denied. He's like, no, you're not overturning that plea. Also, this time when he was on the stand, he was asked about returning those ashes to her family like he said he would do. And he smugly replied, oh, I don't even have those anymore. I scattered those over Black Mountain before I was arrested. He was either lying just to not give them back or he had lied before when he had told them he would. So just a jerk. Yeah, just a butt. Well, he'll probably fit right in where he's at. Yep. Finally, on March 5th, 1999. Three and a half years after Patricia Blakely was murdered, Ted got what was coming to him. He was sentenced to 107 years in prison with very little chance of parole. Good. And he is now sitting in North Carolina's central prison in Raleigh, 
where hopefully he's going to remain for the rest of his life. Actually, he's not at Central Prison anymore because I just looked up his prison record mm-hmm. and they have since moved him. He is still in a prison in North Carolina where he will be for the rest of his life. Good. I'm sure he probably feels like he can manipulate a mm-hmm. parole board into letting him out, but I just don't think anybody's going to no, buy that. I don't think so either. He's dangerous, obviously. Obviously. He's actually tried to escape twice. Really? So, I mean, I don't think he'll give up trying to escape. The Blakeleys now had some sort of closure. My sources for this episode were, I drew heavily from a book called Unholy Covenant by Lynn Chandler Willis. And also several newspaper accounts in the Greensboro News and Record, especially the quotes I used were from mainly her book. Uh, and then I drew from my personal memories of mm-hmm. this case. And then my friend who had gone to church with Patricia and Ted at South Am, okay. she shared some with me as well. Those sure were some hard times. Yes, they were. 